Sorrow turned into joy. Betrayal turned into faithfulness. Death turned into life. And then the apostles have their biggest fishing day on record. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. By the way, if you're in Santa Cruz, come visit our church. It's a great church. We have awesome people. Even if you don't want to talk to us, you might not like us very much after watching these for a long time. Um, Our church members are quite nice people. Yeah. Some tell me they're the greatest. The the greatest. People say it. (laughs) Yep. Like, subscribe, comment, and if you're in Santa Cruz, come check out our church. It'd be awesome. a good time to meet you. Awesome. Gospel of John. Man. The last one. Soaking it up. We're going to get just some some prime chapters here at the end. Um, we'll hit, again, we'll kind of focus on what's unique to the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. So we kind of won't, we won't get into as much the details of the crucifixion because we've kind of gone through that. But, man, great, great ending here. And, again, he kind of wraps it all up nicely for us. So we finished the first half last week. I mean, it's more than half, but the first major section, which was chapters 1 through the end of 12. Mm -hmm. So those chapters are the book of signs. Mm -hmm. We saw the seven signs of Jesus that uh, sort of structure that that story. Again, there's many other signs written, as we see at the end of the Gospel of John, but these were were picked for a specific reason, to illuminate who Jesus is and to kind of give a foundation for these, these speeches that he gives, these sermons that he gives. And now we're in the book of glory, starting in chapter 13. And we're seeing Jesus in the last moments of his life, mm-hmm. try to pack in as many helpful things for his disciples to encourage them, to speak to who the Holy Spirit is, yep. to, to who he is, to build them up, and to remind them of what's most important. So chapter 15 we're going to get into right now, and it really, um, yeah, it really gives us some fundamentals for life as a Christian. Awesome. I'm excited. Spiritual life. So. I always want to be encouraged with reminders of how to live faithfully. Absolutely. So yeah. let's let's get into it. We're, we're going to see the seventh and final I am statement. So remember, I am goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, the revelation of God's name, mm-hmm. and to Isaiah chapters 41 and 43. There's right. a bunch of them, right? Yep. But these I am statements about who God is. And mm-hmm. so when Jesus invokes that I am, he's saying that he is God. And he's given us seven different I am's that not only say he's God, but they explain different aspects of his character. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the seventh one is, I am the vine. I am the vine. So he starts off in verse one, I am the, the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. That's what, uh, th- this I am statement is a little scary, I'm just saying. Why is that? Well, because what he says to the branches that aren't part of the vine. Oh, yeah, you're going to chopped off. Yeah, throw in the fire, the fire. dude. <laughs> Whoops. That's scary. Yeah, yeah, that one's that one's kind of more literal. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's scary stuff. Um, but he says, you know, verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So this is a this is a pretty easy metaphor to understand at one level. Jesus is the source of life and the source of fruitfulness. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to have a fruitful life, you have to be connected to the vine. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's pretty That's pretty easy to see on the surface. Right. But if you've gone through the Old Testament with us, you know that this vine metaphor, again, has lots of roots, pun intended, in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And we see Isaiah chapter 5, Ezekiel chapter 15, Israel referred to as a vine, uh, a useless vine typically, but, you know, a uh, the idea that God planted a vineyard, 
he brought Israel and planted them in this beautiful vineyard. And then when he went to look for fruit, there was only nasty grapes, right. only yuck grapes. <laughs> and so he chops it down and destroys it is the idea. Hmm. So Israel is the vine and they can't produce the fruit that God requires of them. They can't produce the works that God requires of them to bring him glory. And so he destroys them. Yep. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, I am the true vine. Mm-hmm. I'm the fulfillment of Israel. I'm the one who can do good works. And you need to abide in me if you want to do good works. Right. Yep. So he brings salvation and he brings sanctification. Mm. He transforms who we are. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Hmm. So clear, such a straight up statement. Not, you can do nothing apart from Jesus. We, we need to abide in him. So we, how do you do that? Well, he kind of goes on in more detail. He says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Hmm. So follow God, hear his word, obey his word, that's one of the ways that you abide with Jesus. Hmm. So it's not just an abstract, I'm going to just like sit here and like abide, um, do my, my meditations. Although, you know, meditate on God's word, right? clearly. But it's, it's also a tangible thing. Abiding in Jesus is actually trusting in him to the point where his, his commands aren't burdensome. Mm-hmm. You do what he says. Right. That's, that's part of it. So it's, this is very practical for us as well. Is Jesus the source of life and the one who can make you fruitful? Then you need to listen to his word and obey him. Right, yeah, amen. Yeah. Not rocket science. Not rocket science, but it's hard to do still. You know? Absolutely. And it's impossible to do for someone who doesn't have the spirit, right? Yeah, apart from so, him, we can do nothing. That's, that's uh, pretty clear. That's not like not nothing. Like You can't make a peanut butter jelly sandwich on your own. Well, yeah. Well, you can't. I mean, can, I, of, yeah. <laughs> I mean, right now God is upholding the world, well, the world yeah, right? Life, but yeah, but yeah he, I think he's speaking more spiritually. Yeah, yeah I agree. Chapter 16, we have a lot more on the Holy Spirit, on the, the comforter, the helper, mm-hmm. the yeah. paraclete. Um, so we see some more about who he is. And again, this is a huge theme in these last few chapters. Someone's going to come to, in essence, take the place of, of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So he says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Yep. <laughs> like, how could that possibly be true? How is it better for the disciples that Jesus is not there? Right. Well, he says, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So it's beneficial. Like we live in a better time in redemptive history than the, the apostles did right. at this point, right? Of uh, We have the fullness of salvation revealed in Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit living with us, mm-hmm. always with us. And what does he do? We've seen a few things he does. Convicts of sin. He comes alongside. He, he helps us. Verse 8, though, says... When he comes, he will convict the, the world convin- concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Mm. So he brings conviction as well. Right. He shows us the truth of who we are, and that causes us to turn to, to Christ in repentance. Mm-hmm. So that's one of his works. We see again the emphasis of truth. Verse 13, he's called the spirit of truth again. And Jesus says he will guide you into all the truth. So the spirit reveals to us the truth. He illuminates the scripture. This is a fundamental role of yeah. the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but he glorifies Christ. Mm. He sh- like Sometimes people will say, we don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit. 
probably true. We don't speak enough about anyone, but I could see how the uh, anyone in, this, in the Trinity, right? Any of the persons of the Godhead, we don't speak enough about, but I could see how you would say the balance is off. Hmm. And when I go to GCC, I hear about Jesus all the time, right? Yeah. Every sermon comes back to the saving work of Jesus, his death and resurrection. You guys do communion every week, so you're always talking about the death of Jesus and what that means for us. So why isn't the Holy Spirit the main focal point as much? Right. And I would say that actually the way that he's presented in Scripture is that he is shining the spotlight on the Son, who in turn leads us to the Father. So you're saying it's Scripture as a whole doesn't put him at less importance, but it, it talks about him a lot less than... Yeah, he's more behind the scenes. Yeah. He's just as much God. He's just as much a person. He's just as much worthy of our worship. Right. And all of that. So we can't, I just want to make sure we don't diminish the Holy Spirit at all. But I think the reason why Christ becomes sort of the center, central focus for us is because that's what the Spirit wants. Hmm. So look at, look at verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Hmm. So he's showing the, the work of the Spirit to point us to Jesus, the one who intercedes for us before the Father. Yeah. I think it's a fair assessment of that. I mean, obviously, if a church never talked about the Spirit ever be a huge or problem. once a year, yeah, that, that's an issue, right? <laughs> that would be a huge problem. Yeah. But, yeah, is the Spirit supposed to be our main focus? I, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Not as much as, as uh, Jesus and his saving work. That is sort of the centerpiece of, of our theology. Yeah, and, and you do see, like, the error of people that do focus entirely on, like, some abstract version of the Spirit working through yeah. them, you know? you know, prosperity, you know, denominations and stuff or groups of churches, you know? Yes. So, yeah. And I wonder if that, I mean, cause obviously it's a misunderstanding of who the spirit is, what he does. Right. But again, if you take Jesus out of the work of the, the spirit, then you're going to misunderstand his work. Exactly. Yeah. So he's to bring us joy. Well, yeah, he brings us joy by showing us Jesus, reminding us of his words, his salvation, and through that leading us to the father. Yeah. He's not, and he, is not an end in himself. He's trying to point us to the glory of the Father. Mm. So anyway, we can talk more about that, too, but we won't right now. Let's get to the high priestly prayer. Speaking of Trinity and you know challenging passages, I mean, this is such a great passage. This is kind of known as the Holy of Holies in the New Testament, mm-hmm. where you see the Son speaking to the Father. You see a lot of Jesus' mission, his intimate relationship with the Father, um, you're looking at an eternal relationship between father and son. And he's speaking to the things that are on his heart as he goes to the cross. So I mean, this is very instructive for us, very helpful. Yeah. So this is known as the high priestly prayer. I remember when we were teaching through this, it's actually a challenging passage to teach on, you know? Just yes. So. Yeah. I think we taught it in like four parts probably. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. could have, could have been a lot more. Um, if I went through the gospel of John again, I'd, pr- I'd probably go slower than yeah. we did last time. Yeah. It took two years last time or... I think it was like a year and a half. Yeah. 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 About a year and a half. But man, there's just so much that you could soak in in this this book. By the way, if you, like we've mentioned before, if you want to get deeper on any of these passages, go to our website, gospelcommunitysc.org, and you can watch the sermons there and pick a specific passage and hear more about it if if that's helpful. So verse verse 1 of chapter 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So Christ is... Focusing on his job, which is to glorify the Father. Mm -hmm. That's the ultimate end for the Son. And then he says, um, 
verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is an amazing statement. Mm -hmm. Again, a great memory verse. What is eternal life? (laughs) What does it consist of? Is it about you know, having a, a resurrected body. Well, of course, that's part of it. Is it about uh, eternal joy and satisfaction and peace? Well, of course, that's part of it. How would you sum it up, though? Uh-huh. He says it here, that they know you. Knowing God is eternal life, right? And and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. No. So to know God is, in a sense, the, the final goal of yeah. salvation. Yeah. Um, or at least one of the final goals, one of the ultimate goals of salvation. Yeah, and it's the longing of the human heart. Like, you try to, you know, substitute that with something and it just fails, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then he he goes on to pray uh, for his people. So we see verse 9, I'm praying for them, meaning his disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So he's clear as to who he's praying for and who he's not. There are certain people that are his, certain people that are not his. How, how does he know that? It's almost like he's elected certain people to be his. And so he knows from eternity and because of his authority, those who are his and those who aren't. Yeah. And so he's praying with the intention that those who are, he's chosen would be saved, Yeah. which is exactly what he's doing. <laughs> and he prays for protection for his disciples in the time when he's gone. He prays for their sanctification, right? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is mm-hmm. truth. And then he turns around and prays for us. I mean, yeah. the, of all the places where, you know, all, all times we've said that you're not in the scripture, that you're not the subject of the scripture, like uh, if it's yeah. like the Israelites or something, right? Like I have a plan for you, says the Lord. Well, that's, I mean, in context, that's, you know, Israel. It's not us. So we have to understand it in this original context and then how that applies to us. But here, I mean, this is us. Right. Verse 20. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is looking down history and praying for all of his people. And what is he praying for us? Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Mm. So he's praying for unity in the church. That's that's an amazing statement, amazing statement. So Christ's heart as he nears the end of his life, his his thoughts and his final words to the Father, well, he'll pray in the garden as well, but in this context is for our unity. Mm -hmm. We'd be united. And we could talk a lot about unity, what it is and what it isn't. It's not just ignoring differences or ignoring doctrine. Right. It's it's, uh, being together in the truth of Scripture, aiming to accomplish the mission of Jesus. Well, yeah, there's a comparative aspect. Unity, like the Trinity is unified, right? Yes. Yeah, and that's a pretty comprehensive unity. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, um, But also, like, the last caveat on that, latter end of 21, where it says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So unity with a purpose, right? We're we're unified to glorify God ultimately, but God's going to use us to to bring others to believe in the good news, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a passage. That's a great passage. Great, great one to meditate on in depth. Hmm. Chapter 18, man, it is so hot in here. It is really Usually hot. we're freezing in here, and Keith brought a heater today and turned it up to 90. And I said, why not just put it at 70? And he's like, I wanted to get hot faster or something. Yeah, yeah we'll make it like a sauna. So it's, it's probably roughly 89 and a half degrees right now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll know when it turns off. You're I welcome. Guess. You're welcome. Better than being cold, I guess. 
Yeah, it's much say, better I than take this off here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, you're reminding me of Israel right now. Not enough manna, too much manna, all the you know food that we could have. Oh, you wish you had leeks and stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah. you're reminding me of Satan right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> chapter eighteen. Chapter eighteen. Um, the, so we see the rest of Jesus in his trials. Again, I don't want to focus on everything here, but an interesting detail in the arrest account is has to do with that mm-hmm. I am phrase again. So in, in verse 4, Jesus confronts the mob that is confronting him. Right? Mm-hmm. Verse 4, he says, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was sitting with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, which we know is the, the phrase, I am, ego, right. a me in Greek. When he said that, they drew back and fell to the ground. Hmm. So his I am statement here knocks them to the ground, this group of Roman soldiers. Crazy. So, and then he again clarifies, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus, in other words, he says, let my disciples go. Hmm. So Jesus is showing here that he is the gate, Right. Um, he's the gate to the sheep. He's not going to let someone come in and harm them. He's showing the fulfillment of chapter 17, right. the protection of his people mm-hmm. in the time that he's gone, that he has the power to fulfill that. So it's a, it's a really fascinating passage, and it's only included in, in the Gospel of John. That he yeah. speaks those words, I am the name of God, and that these soldiers fall back in yeah. fear. I wish uh, the Gospel of John really included the... Um you know, naked guy running away. Be that would have been a great, yeah. yeah. Maybe some more detail on that. Yeah, that would have been fun. So wh- where he went when he was naked and all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when did he actually get clothes again? You know, something, you know. These these are the details that we need. Yes. <laughs> so Peter denies Jesus as he does in the other Gospels. Um, in verse 18, it says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was warm, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So a little incidental detail there. But it'll be important at the very at the epilogue. So this will, this will come back around this image of Peter by a charcoal fire, which is where he is when he denies Jesus. Mm-hmm. So don't forget that. Um, Jesus goes before Caiaphas and Annas, who are the high priest and the the father in law of the high priest. Right, and Annas is the guy with the real power. Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. I always get them mixed up. Yeah, Caiaphas is the actual high priest, and Annas is the father-in-law of the high priest who kind of pulls all the strings but he's going back and forth between these guys put on trial Mm -hmm. and then goes to Pilate eventually and we've seen Pilate's trials so in chapter 19 we see that Pilate flogs him to try to really detailed account of the whole process in this gospel and and kind of a distinct angle again so so Pilate flogs Jesus to sort of appease the crowd never like don't ever try to appease a mob never works (laughs) If we haven't learned that in recent history. <laughs> well, we, we clearly haven't because we're making the same mistakes. Anyway. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Verse 6, um, Pilate says, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Hmm. So again, what we saw in the other Gospels, Pilate's admitting there's no, he's not guilty. Right. And then they say, verse 7, We have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Mm-hmm. So Pilate is freaked out by that. Right. He doesn't know what to do with that. And so he's interrogating Jesus more. But Jesus shows himself through all this to be the one in control. He's not moved by Pilate's threats. Mm-hmm. He's not doing what Pilate wants him to do. Um, so there's just back and forth. And then the way 
that the Jews convince Pilate to kill Jesus is really interesting hmm. because it reminds us of you know previous gospels, obviously, with Pilate's own insecurities in his position. Right. In verse 12, it says, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Hmm. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So again, like when did the Jews start caring about Caesar? Right. <laughs> they have always hated the Romans, <laughs> but now they're very concerned about you know being on the right side with Caesar. We're, right. we're Caesar's friends. And then they say something I mean, pretty amazing. Um, he says in verse 14, Pilate says, Behold your king. And they cry out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Bad answer. Oof. <laughs> wow. Amazing statement. Even if even if you thought Jesus was an imposter, right. that's an incredible statement. Right. And it shows just how wicked they've become and how blinded they've become. Mm-hmm. You're actually claiming Caesar and saying, we don't have any other king. Mm. So what, there's no, no, no God who's king, over, king of kings and lord of lords? There's no Messiah to come who's going right. to conquer the enemy? No, you just fully claim an oppressive, evil king as your king, yep. proudly, and all because you hate Jesus. Right. So uh, this blind hatred is just incredible. Mm. Let's look at, uh, let's go a little further here. Um, we see this this snapshot again. I mentioned it in the first video, but this picture of Jesus speaking to John the Apostle and his mother Mary mm-hmm. while he's on the cross. So in verses 26 and 27, he takes the time while he's dying to uh, directly speak to his mom and to his disciple and to make sure that his mom is cared for. Right. So he, he says, this is your mom, this is your son. Mm-hmm. And so from then on, John is taking care of Mary. Mm as if she was his own mom. So amazing, amazing love and, and care of Jesus in his last moments. And again, a pointer to that whoever wrote this this uh, book had intimate knowledge of these events. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we see verse, verse 30, the famous statement when he dies that's unique to the Gospel of John. It is finished. Mm. It is finished. So this in- incredible statement speaking to the completion of God's work, the fulfillment of scripture, and the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing to be done after it's been finished by Jesus. Yeah. His death truly accomplished what we needed, and there's nothing more we can add to it. Yeah. Which is consistent with the whole book of John. Exactly. Yeah. Jesus plus nothing. It's not plus works, you know, efforts, whatever you put in that yeah. plus. Yeah. Just Jesus. Absolutely. Absolutely. Then we also see Nicodemus coming out of the closet at the end of this at the end of this chapter. You know, so we see, we've seen Joseph of Arimathea. Mm-hmm. It says, well, verse 38, it's kind of worth reading. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked for the body. So he's a disciple, but he's still kind of in the closet. Um, and then we also see Nicodemus in verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. So he's mm-hmm. emphasizing that, that he came to him secretively, mm-hmm. right? He didn't want to be seen. But now he comes bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and so he's openly um, taking the body of Jesus, taking responsibility for this. These are yeah. things that they're going to go on the record for. Right. And, and it shows that these guys are choosing not to live in fear and instead to, to begin to trust in Jesus. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Guys who were on the council, who didn't approve of what the, the council did in killing Jesus. Right. Jesus is saving even out of that group. Crazy. Um, 
And then we see in verse 41 the observation that in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, Mm. and in the garden a tomb. So just like in the Gospel of Luke, there was this emphasis on new creation and Adam, second Adam. In John, maybe it's even more clear in the resurrection account. Mm -hmm. It's very clear. So in chapter 20, the resurrection account, it starts off by saying, now on the first day of the week. So that's very instructive. Think back to the Gospel of John and how it started. It starts with Genesis language, yep, and it records a number of days in chapter one, yep, that we could say add up to a full week, and then Jesus blesses a marriage. Mm. So it's it's all uh, a repetition of Genesis chapter one. Mm-hmm. So this has been a theme that Jesus is the same God as the God of the original creation, yeah. and now that God is starting a new week. Mm-hmm. That language, I don't think it's accidental at all. I think it's very intentional. Yeah. He's saying this is a new creation week. Jesus is bringing life and resurrection into the world, and he's reversing the effects of the curse. Yeah, He's a new kind of human because he's been resurrected. Mm-hmm. He's a new Adam, and he's bringing a new creation into the world. Yeah, amen. Um, so, And we even see another good thing to observe is this interaction between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's unique to the Gospel of John as well. But it says in, in verse 15, where Jesus appears to her and says, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And it says, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him. So, And she doesn't know who he is, right? But the observation that she thinks he was a gardener is super interesting. You're right. Because the first man, Adam, was a gardener. Right. That was his job. He was to work the garden, right? Right. work it and keep it. And so here there's a there's a hint at the reality that jesus is the second adam bringing the creation to its fulfillment Mm -hmm. bringing wholeness and peace shalom into the world right and of course it's what he says to his disciples when he meets them right Mm -hmm. verse 19 peace be with you peace be with you and um and in this really interesting interaction in verse well in chapter 19 or verse 19 and following he gives them the Holy Spirit, or at least he, I think, does something symbolically which speaks to the arrival of the Holy Spirit right. in Acts chapter 2. Yeah, okay. Um, that's what I, that's what I would how I understand this. But he says, Peace be with you, verse 21. This is the second time. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Hmm. So this is um, powerfully symbolic, not covid appropriate right (laughs) we hopefully he was at six foot distance and wearing three masks at least when he did this um so that not too much holy spirit got on them yeah but but yeah it's but it's a it's a symbolic act that reflects the original creation where god breathes into man the breath of life and now he's making a new creation new people that are going to fulfill the original creation mandate and the great commission Mm -hmm. from matthew 28 so an amazing, amazing thing. And then, of course, we see Jesus and Thomas. Je- Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Mm-hmm. And Jesus receives that. Now, the epilogue, I want to get to real quick while we have time here. Chapter 21. Jesus appears to his disciples. He tells them to cast. They're out there fishing, right, again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've gone back to their old jobs. He tells them to cast the nets on the right side of the boat, which they do, and it of course, they catch 153 sh- fish. I almost said sheep. Um, <laughs> and Peter freaks out, puts his coat back on, dives into the water. <laughs> I guess modesty is more important than like not drowning. <laughs> but it, and he and he, he he comes to Jesus right. Yeah. And when he gets awesome there, picture. verse nine, 
they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. So Jesus is making breakfast. But the charcoal fire is so important because this was the scene of the crime, of Peter's crime, of his denial. And now Jesus sits there with him. He asks him three times if he loves him. And Peter says, I, yes, Lord, of course. And he, in that way, he restores Peter, forgives him, cleanses him, and restores him to awesome. his office, so, so to speak. Such a difference in the Gospel of Mark, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then they were afraid. And that's yeah. it. Yeah. So, and then, and then of course, uh, he tells Peter, you're going to die for me, which is an honor. Classic. And Peter says, what about John? Is John going <laughs> to die for you? <laughs> Can I get some company here? But I love the ending. Just w- great place to end. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not the, contain the books that could be written. Yeah, amen. Amazing. So, so much to Jesus. And just, do you see the awe and the love that John has for Jesus as he writes oh, yeah. this? Oh, yeah. And I just love, you know, him putting Jesus on display and believe in him, believe in this this God come to earth to say man. So. Yeah. Well, amen. thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel. That's the end of the Gospel of John, and we'll see you next week.